the last three weeks I've been talking about the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 17. And so I say this is part three. But the Olivet Discourse, if, if you haven't been here, that as we said last week, that we don't really have the right to move Scripture to suit your prophecy. You can't do it. And the reason why that I'm taking the time for the next eight weeks to deal with this is because that, does anybody here own a dictionary? It's not a trick question. Aren't you glad it's in alphabetic order? Amen. Now, in school growing up, <clears throat> Jeremy, when I was paying attention, I would say, how do you spell a word? And the first, anybody does that? I still do. I, thank you. And, and you know what the teacher would say? Look it up. So my response is, well, how can I look it up if I don't know how to spell it? Well, I get, I get the understanding of it now. Just, if I can just get it close, <clears throat> then I, I can kind of work on it. It's so important, on, in, in, and I'm telling you, every, every, every guy in the world and woman in the world now is want to talk about Gog and Magog and end of days. Listen, just turn all that mess off right now. I do believe that you can read the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, but I will tell you, as long as we keep this thing in context, correct and in context, we'll be good. And so the reason why I've been speaking, and we're not talking about futuristic times and confusing people, but for the last two weeks, as you well know, we've been hitting this thing pretty hard about people taking biblical prophecy and interpreting it the way they want to interpret it, and, 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 we're, and we're going to talk a little bit about it today. But it's so important that not only that, that this message, what we're dealing with is not only correct, but it's in contents correct, but the context is correct. It has to be. So, the Olivet Discourse. So, as you have heard that in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24, they asked this question, and this is a wonderful structure, the temple. It's magnanimous. The architect, it's great. When Herod built it in 16 B.C., that it's impenetrable. We'll talk about this next week, that that it, it, it can't be disturbed. No enemy can come against it. And Jesus looked around and said, the day will come, there won't be one stone left on the other. And, and, and they were in gasp. And so he, he, he began to meander, meander off down into the Mount of all of that. And then the four, there was only four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he begins to say to them privately of this prophecies, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because, as you heard me say, to say something about the destruction of Jerusalem in public is instant death sentence. And it's like getting on an airplane, the middle airplane, go, hey, I know how to blow up an airplane with a bomb. Yeah, that's not a good idea. So the reason why that this is so important, you understand that if you have a, if you have a, a Bible, and we'll talk about this, that sometimes that they'll insert captions above it, and you assume that's the gospel. That is probably not the gospel. How many knows that the National Enquirer is not the Bible? <laughs> the rest of you, it's not. Look at there, a boy raised by a pack of wolves. Well, their last name was Wolves. All right. So, so we're going to be very careful with this. I take this position very seriously. Okay? So now, there are two views concerning eschatology, and the word eschatology by definition means last things or end things. Eschatology. The subject is parousia, which is the coming of Christ. So kind of keep in mind that dealing with the first coming of Jesus, all the prophets of old said he was going to come in a yellow bus, and they were looking for a blue taxi. They missed him. It's amazing. So now then dealing with his second coming, now then we say, we got it. He's coming back in a blue taxi, but, but he's probably coming back in a yellow bus. And what I mean by that is that if they missed him, in his first appearance, it could be possible that we got the second appearance messed up. All right. So there are two views. Number one is called the fullness of time. And the fullness of times is in regard to the kingdom of heaven. There are two views. There's only two dealing with biblical prophecies or the coming of Christ, parousia. And we'll talk about the rapture of the church, and we're going to get to that in about two weeks or three. 
Because people's already texting me and say, please, put whatever sermon's on today so we can listen to it. Well, we're not going to do it. We're just going to show them. How's that? And so what happens is, in regard to the kingdom of heaven, the first view is the fullness of times. It means the kingdom of heaven has already come through the birth of Jesus Christ. Now let that set in. In the fullness of times, in regard to the kingdom of heaven, because it has already come, and the kingdom of heaven came in the birth of Jesus Christ. Number two, the kingdom principles are already at work here and now, not somewhere in an unknown distance, space, and time. So there are two views concerning eschatology, and, and the very primary beginning is, is this, that when Jesus Christ was born, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us, it's all those little sayings that you singing in songs, but when he came to this earth, was born of a virgin. Now, let me, let, let me, let me clarify this. That, that when Darren Miller, his last name is Miller, but when he came out of the womb, he was a Miller. Once again, I don't want to treat you as a bunch of preschoolers. This is real Bible talk. And when Darren come out of his mother's womb, his daddy didn't say, now, if you'll, if, if you'll make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed, you can become a miller. When you come out of your mother's womb, you was a miller. And when he come out of the Virgin Mary's womb, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was King Jesus. He didn't have to work into it. He didn't have to do anything. The king has now come to planet Earth. Whether you agree with it, whether you believe it, or you don't understand it, when he come out of his mother's belly, he was Emmanuel. God is now with us. Agreed? So that's, that's the first primary basis of the fullness of time. When Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin Mary, fulfilled by the scriptures, when he come out of his mother's womb, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that when he was born, remember what they said, and I, I told you this a couple weeks ago, you remember the wise men? They traveled about, oh, 1,700 miles. It took a year and a half from the birth of Jesus for them to find him in the manger. They didn't find him in the manger, and they found him in the house 18 months later. And the first time they get to Jerusalem, the first thing they said was, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Now, most translations will say this, but I want you to know, and, and it kind of got Herod riled up a little bit, the king of the Jews. Most translations put the king of the Jews, but some of the old Hebrew writers will say, not the king of the Jews. He said, we're looking for the king. And that got his attention. Because just to say we're looking at the king of the Jews would classify him as the king of a, of a certain race or ethnic group, the Jews. But when you walk up to Herod and say, we come from Persia and we're looking for the king. He said, I am the king. He said, no, you're not the king. You're an imposter. We're looking for the real king. That got his attention. It's so much that he slaughtered children. So the idea that even the wise men knew that it was more than just a symbol of something, the king of heaven, the king of eternity, the king of the past and the future has now come to planet earth. And he could be found in, in the form of, of a child. Now the second one is the future expectation. Prophetic events will come to pass in an unknown place and time. They are yet to come. All prophecies are yet to come. The fulfillment of prophecies belong to the future. So now then, that most people that knows anything about Bible history and teaching, that we have two classifications, there's a tug of war. Concerning the kingdom of heaven, it is the already versus the have not yet. So when you, and we're going to get to preterists, we're going to get to all these things in about eight weeks. My goodness, I'll retire by the time we get through this. And I laugh about it, but people for years have been wanting me to talk about this, and I'll tell them, I, I don't want to talk about it. Now I want to talk about it. You asked for it, so sit there and take it, all right? <laughs> so we have two types of prophecy dealing with eschatology. One, one is that the already versus the have not yet. And so I was raised in Assembly of God Church, Pentecostal and all this stuff, and, and I was part of the are not yet. But I stayed pretty well confused on it. I'm still and confused on it. But dealing with all of that discourse, that we have to keep everything in context. So the first view is deal when John the Baptist appears 
on the stage of history. A dispensation has been reached dealing with the kingdom of heaven. Now, this sounds funny, but John the Baptist was really an Old Testament prophet, even though that he was in the New Testament. But what we refer to that is he's still prophesying the kingdom of heaven is coming. But John, which is the cousin of Jesus, John, unlike the other Old Testament prophets that prophesied and announced the coming of the kingdom in an unknown space and time or a distant future, John announces at volume 10 in Matthew chapter 3, verse number 2, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, everybody else from John backward has been talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom coming in, in an unknown future, date, and space of time. For 1,500 years since the law, they've been talking about Messiah coming. But now then, John, unlike the other prophets, the Old Testament prophets, that he's not talking about him to come. Now he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word hand in the Greek is, is a word, in idzo is a word that basically means here, now, in front of you, in plain sight. It's in plain view. And when John was saying this, that, that he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it means the kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. The king, he's not talking about a kingdom of heaven that's coming in the year 2025 or 2035. He said the kingdom of heaven that's been prophesied through all the Old Testament prophets, now then, that, that dispensation of prediction that he will come is over. Everything that the Old Testament prophesied about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is coming, that dispensation is through. He said, now then, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Agnizzo is a word for it. He's right in front of you. He's staring at you. He's looking at you. He's at hand. Now, some people want to use the word at hand as the word Maranatha, but that's a wrong translation. And Maranatha is a word at close or near to come. This word, Agnizzo, is a word he's looking at you. You can feel his breath. He's so close. Now, I want to break this up for you and just leave that up for just a moment. Let's use the word kingdom because some of you are from Wilson, so I have to be careful with this. So we don't want to make this hard to you. We, want, we, we, we don't want to complicate. Nothing in the Bible is complicated. People make it complicated. All right? So what happens is, is that, because I told somebody today, Jesus said, I come to save the lost sheep of Israel. The word lost sheep doesn't refer to like sinners going to hell. Lost sheep represents misdirected, misguided, been given wrong directions. Jesus said the Jews have been given so many wrong directions for 1,500 years. No wonder they're wore out. I am the way to the Father. And it's that simple. So, so let, let, me, let me break this up to you in dealing with the kingdom of heaven. Because there's all types of books, and I want to tell you right now, I'm not selling a book. All right? You wouldn't buy it anyway. Take the word kingdom, and we're, and we're going to split it into king and dom. The word dom in the English where we get a word for, for it's the Latin word, it means domain. Domain, territory, or area. The king in front of it is one who has complete authority over that territory and that area. But if, if we could just quote this and leave the word dom out. So let's quote Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and leave the word dom, means territory or area, and this is what it says. The king is in front of you. And that's what John was saying. The king, not a king, but the kingdom or the king of the dominion. And the Bible said that the earth is the Lord and all thereof is his. So when you see the word kingdom, it kind of gives you the idea that it's not complicated, but he's telling you the king is in front of you. He's not to come. He's not in some unknown future and space of time. He is staring you right in the eye, plain view, and that's not a school. So the king is in front of you. 
And they had trouble with that. So the mission of the king, and I'm glad you asked, is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10 and 12. So let's read it. And so even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, John said, but there's one who's coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals that I'm not even worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12. And his, when only fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's two things that John is telling you about what the king has come to do, and the king is now here. And I said this, but, but, but don't, don't leave yet. When I get through with you, you'll understand that this is a kingdom age. And there's a king that lives in me. And that's why you can, you can sit by some, beside someone and walk into a room without saying anything, and they hate you. That's why you can sit by somebody in church sometime that whatever, for whatever reason, and you, 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 you feel that resentment and the heat coming off them is because there is a king living in you. Kingdom authority, kingdom justice, kingdom equity, kingdom wisdom. And just because they're not living a lifestyle that represents the kingdom, you don't have to say anything, but they really want to cut your throat like they did. Jesus, my Savior. The Romans didn't kill him. The Jews killed him. The religious leaders killed him. People carrying Bibles killed him. Nothing's changed. We just wear better costumes. Two things that are going on. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. And number two, the fan is in his hand. John says the king is already here among you. The king is here. The king is here in front of you. And he's doing two things. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. The fan is in his hand. Both of these represent that the work of progress has already began. So here's the image. The first one, the image is it's not a woodsman looking for his axe. He's not surveying the tree and drawing dotted lines around what he plans to do. When he says the axe is laid to the root of the tree, it's not the fact that he took a couple of swings at it and, and he knocked, knocked the bark off the tree and run a couple of squirrels out of the nest. That's not what it's saying. The image, the true language of this is that the axe has already been so deeply into the core of the tree, one more decisive stroke and the tree is gone. He's telling you that the kingdom is already chopping away at, at the tree. Not going to. It's already laid. The word laid in the Greek, it means it's already impaled and inserted into this tree. One more stroke and the tree's over. It's telling you he's already at work with, with the false religion of his day. That's why they hated John. That's why he didn't live long. Those that will live for godliness will suffer persecution, including good old you. Can we get along? No. Can I coexist? Not a chance. And if you believe that, then, well, you're crazy. It ain't the way it works. <laughs> the second one image is the fan is in his hand. And th this is a common practice of, 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 of removing chaff from the, the corn and and, and the weed, and they, they put on a large concrete or a, a stone threshing floor, and they separate and bust it, and then what they would do is, is, is they, would, they would wave it with a fan. And what it would do, it would separate the wheat from the chaff, and then it would burn it with unquenchable fire. That's not really going to hell. That's what they would do. They would burn it to keep the husk from going back in there. And that's a process of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when I get through this, we'll talk about this. This is what baptism in fire means. He separates us from sin, but thank God he doesn't leave sin laying around the edges to get back in. He removes it. It's a baptism of fire. I drink all the liquor I want to drink. I just don't want to drink it. Why? Because he has purged me in that. When he's telling you that the king is already at work, he's already laid the axe in the tree, and it's already taken place, and he's already moving the fan. 
He's already separating the body. So, so I, I just want to make this clear to you. This is found in Luke chapter number 12, 50 through 53, and this is the New Living Translation. So for all you people that really feel like that, and I'm not going to name any names because you know I don't name names, but listen, we're going to all get along. We're not all going to get along. Oh, God is love. He is, but he's just too. He's a God of wrath. There, there's judgment. God expects holiness from us and perfection and growing and maturity. So Jesus, this is Jesus said, I have a terrible bad... I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I'm under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Watch this. And do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? Hmm. No, I have come to divide people against each other. And from now on, from now on, the axe has penetrated the tree. The fan is separating the husk from the kernel. It's moving. And I'll tell you what, when I first started this church years ago, in the first 10 years, I was so upset when people leave. Now then, sometimes I applaud when people leave because there's, there, there's a separation going on. And I like you, I guess. I do, I like you. But I told somebody one time, you know, I was good before you came and I'll be good when you leave. And if you're here to, to, to cause problems and, and, and bring division, we got a set of doors. We'll help you find them. I'm here to teach you biblical principles of the truth of the kingship of Jesus Christ and what he's doing today. And we're not making fabricated stories and fairy tales of how we're all going to get along because somebody said, well, what would Jesus do? Here we go. From now on, families will be split apart three in the favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. The father will divide against the son and the son against the father, mother against the daughter and daughter against the mother and the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law and you get it. And you say, well, I've been taught we was all supposed to get along. Go find that preacher and kick him right there in the back end. <laughs> Where you're going to find that when Jesus said, love one another, pay attention. When he says, love one another, John 15 through 17, he's dealing only with his disciples in closed doors. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you. He's not talking to the masses that's full of hate and hypocrisy. He's talking to these 11 or 12 that absolutely, he said, I'm going to tell you an in-house secret. Doors locked. Love, love one another. You 11, love one another. Because those people outside these doors hate you. And I'm not trying to tell you that we have a responsibility to feed the poor and clothe the naked and do all those things, but I'm telling you what, my first responsibility is to find a core of believers and that core of believers that are committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are connected but I will tell you, people will come your way. Watch this. And they're here to divide and separate you. And what we have to do is make sure that we keep the spirit of unity among us. But Jesus said, I've come to tell you the truth. I didn't come to bring peace. I come to divide. What a weird statement. Now, besides me, because I know you all have perfect families, but my family's not perfect. And my family, we don't get along. Now, I know all yours does, so. And you say, well, I don't understand that. I, I don't understand. I mean, you know, I, blah, 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 and I, and I try to live a good life in my family, but, 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 but did you ever wonder why that here you have, you, you're not preaching out somebody's throat, but, but here's what Jesus said. The ax is already laid to the root of the tree. I've already begun at work. The fan is already in my hand. I, I, I begin to do motion. I'm already separating the wheat from the chaff. It's already taking place. And that's why some people can't stand to be around you. But it's okay. Because it is God doing the work in your life. And you're not judging or being critical. You're just letting God take care of this thing. And there's some people, there's some people that you just don't need in your life. And there's some that you do. But let God take care of that. So these two verses are known as the D-Day of the New Testament. Now, the reason why... They're known in prophecy, they're known as the D-Day of the kingdom of heaven. Because D-Day, that it was about June 6, 1944, D-Day was not the end of World War II. 
But D-Day was the decisive turning point that would soon bring an end to the war. Right after the great conflict with the Battle of the Bulge, but just about nine or ten months later, the war would end, or eleven months later, the war would end. But D-Day, these two verses, this is very important, D-Day was not the end of World War II, but it was the decisive turning point that we that was in alliance against Germany knew that we had them on the run. These two verses are the D-Day. The axe and the fan are both symbols that was used by John to let us know that a new king had come to the earth and that new king was now establishing and enforcing kingdom authority now, not to come. So you may say, well, well, there's a lot of things that's got to come to pass. I understand that. I'm just telling you when that time that Jesus was born and he began to execute kingdom authority by his father, he laid the ax to the religious falsehood. The fan is in his hand. He's separating things and moving them to one side. But he's telling you at that moment wasn't the end of what God had planned for Satan and all of his demons. He's telling you that it was the beginning of the end for our enemy. It was the decisive turning point that when the king would come and execute kingdom authority, and that's what Jesus was doing, and even, and even to the cross and the resurrection, and we'll deal with that. It wasn't necessarily that it was over, but it was the beginning point at the turning point that it was over. Now, one day we'll have prophecies that will be fulfilled, but I will tell you, in the kingdom age, from Jesus born to 33 AD, I'll tell you that his kingdom was in full effect and, and, and working, laying the axe to the root of the tree and the fanning of the, of the husk from the corn. So, so what I want you to understand that before we kind of dive off in this next 15 minutes, the, the king is at hand. And the best thing you can do as Christians is, is for once in your life, pay attention we're not looking for a kingdom to come in an unknown space and time. King Jesus is here. And he's in my heart. And he's ruling and he's reigning. And he's cutting down things that doesn't need to be in my life. And he's separating things that is not beneficial to my mind. And he says, if it's not bearing good fruit, it's got to cut down. And all of your bad language and your bad temperament and all that stuff, if King Jesus is in your life, I'm not going to tell you that it'll happen overnight. I'm just telling you, the process of every ax that's been laid to every wicked tree that you have in your life that's bearing corrupt fruit is being cut down and honed down because the king is at work in your life. Not that you got your mind made up is because there's something working in the interior of your heart and your mind, and it's King Jesus. He's at work. You know how I know that? Because I was the biggest rat on planet Earth. So were you. But when the king moved in, he began the process of moving and renovating our heart and our mind, and he's still doing it today. Okay? So, Two categories of prophecy concerning Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, referring to the Olivet Discourse. Number one is dispensationalists. And dispensationalists are people in regards to the kingdom to an unknown time frame in the future. Dispensational means it, it has the idea, and we'll talk about this, but, but it means uh, dispensations of prophetic things to come. Okay, Perusia, the second coming of Christ. Now, two weeks ago, I told you that did he come in 70 AD, and he did. Now, he never hit planet Earth, but he came to destroy the temple. Now, like I told you last week, when couples have fights and somebody slams the door and the picture falls off the wall, for 37 years after they touched Jesus and handled Jesus, from 33 AD to 70 AD, they still run goats and lambs and sacrifice their blood until God said, I had enough. He rejected my son. And God slammed the door on the temple and every rock fell upon itself. So now then, the dispensationalist means things to come. Here is their things to come list. All right? Number one, we're going to kind of get this in, in, in the ballpark. 
The church age is here and now. They say we're living in the church age. And I'm not arguing with you. I'm just giving you some information. This is referred to as the dispensation of grace. So from 33 AD to an unknown space and time, it comes equipped with uh, uh, devils and destructions and death and all that stuff. That's the time that we're living in right now. From 33 AD to an unknown frame of time is, is what we refer to as the church age. Somewhere from 33 AD on, there's going to be, the, they say, the rapture of the saints. They say the saints are going to be mysteriously taken out of here. All right? Hang on in about three weeks. We're going to get to that. Don't jerk your church membership out of here before we deal with this, all right? Then somewhere, we're going to have a seven-year tribulation. The first three and a half years, that it'll, it'll be the tribulation. Then it'll be the great tribulation and abomination desolation. I already talked about that the first week, but that's somewhere to come. And then somewhere between 33 AD, then we're going to have the second advent of Jesus. That's when he will come back to the earth. Do I believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then somewhere between 33 AD and the whenever, we're going to have a millennial reign. Thousand year period. Don't know when that's going to be, but that's going to happen. And then after that, the Bible says we're, Satan will be released back to earth for a season from 33 AD to who knows when. And then last but not least, that God said, I've had enough, and he conquers every enemy. We win, hip, hip, hooray. And just by, by these, my head has just exploded. Because I can't make any sense of anything of it. And because we're so interested in, in, in trying to connect the dots and take certain passages from old scripture, we're, we're trying to get this in line, but this has nothing to do with the Olivet Discourse. Nothing. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 Mark 13 and Luke 17 has everything to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. That's why Jesus gives this information. Remember what he said? We'll talk about it next week. When that day shall come, if you're in the fields, run to the mountains. And if you're in the mountains, keep it running to the hills of Judea. And if you left something in the walls of Jerusalem, don't go back and get it. And pray that you're not nursing with child and pray it's not on the Sabbath day because of your law. But he said, this is the deal. Because this is what happened. Now pay attention to this. Because Jerusalem was so built as a fortified city and that had withstood every enemy that when King Herod built in 16 B.C. that, that he said it was impenetrable by any foreign army. So the rule was, in case of an enemy attack, you run into the city of Jerusalem, and especially you run inside the temple. That's what I said last week. When a tornado alarm goes off, you're supposed to go to the cellar. What do we do? We go in the front yard and we look for it. <laughs> rule number one is that when you hear the trumpet being blown that the enemy is coming, you run wherever you are from surrounding cities you run to Jerusalem and you make your way to the temple. And Josephus says over one million people were slaughtered in Jerusalem because surrounding cities and surrounding homes in 70 AD when Titus began to move in, they all made their way to the temple and they all made their way inside Jerusalem because they were supposed to. Because it was a fortified city, especially the temple. And the population of Jerusalem was somewhere around 200,000 and now then, 250,000, now then there's over a million people, Josephus says, because everybody got panicky and they did what everybody told them to do is run to the temple. But Jesus said, do the opposite. Why did he say that? Because he said the day will come that if you're within the city walls of Jerusalem or in the temple, great calamity will come upon you. So he said, if you're in the field, and that's when he talks about two in the field, one taken, one not. That's not the rapture church, but we'll say that. Oh, that's a spoiler. Forget that. I see even said that. But this is what he said. If, you, if you're in the fields, run to the mountains. If, you, if you're in the mountains, keep running to Judea. Get as far away from Jerusalem and the temple that you can possibly go. You know what Jesus was doing? He was giving information of life that was outside the normal of religion. And I think he's still going on today. 
Well, somebody said, well, I read that book of prophecy back in Hal Lynch. I understand that, but you might as well throw it in the trash because it ain't come to pass. And I will tell you, every Bible prophecy that's ever been written, probably they had to throw them off the shelf less than a year later because it didn't happen. Oh, it makes a lot of money. But we're not trying to give you futuristic events. I'm dealing with the, all of that discourse. So when I was raised, I was raised all of this still with the unknown. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how long the church age is going to last. I don't know when the rapture is going to place, if it's going to take place. I don't know when the tribulation is going to start. I don't know about the second coming. I don't know anything about the millennium. I don't know about anything. No wonder we're confused. So we don't have a right to take all of that discourse and, and catapult it and insert it to where we want to be inserted. You don't have that right. Jesus is referring to, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 17, about the Olivet Discourse, about the destruction that's going to take place about Jerusalem. Here and now. So last but not least in this little Bible study this morning, what about the fig tree? Anybody know what I got reference to? Do you not know? The prophecy of the fig tree of Israel? Anybody know about that besides me? Really? How many don't know about the prophecy of the fig tree about Israel? Okay. So the dispensationalists say this. They say that the way that we can, we can pretty well put the coming, the parousia of the second coming of Christ is the, the blooming, the budding of the fig tree. Anybody here know about this? They guaranteed it in 1980-something. How Lindsay guaranteed it? And God rest his soul, he's in heaven. But he wrote a book, The Late Great Planet Earth and all these things. He guaranteed it. We, we can mark it down. And it didn't happen. We had a movement across the way a little bit that, I'm not going to name any name, but they, they were thoroughly convinced that Jesus would come in 1988 because Israel become a nation in 1948, and in that generation, the Feast of the Trumpets, in that generation, Jesus Christ would come again. And in 1988, there was a movement worldwide, and even in this town, that Jesus would come in October the 17th, 1988, and people were turning in their car keys and signing all their mortgages to people. And I had just begun to church then. And I know, I know you think I'm lying. I am not lying. This is the parable of the fig tree. This is what everybody says. The parable of the fig tree. When, when Israel buds, becomes a nation, in that generation, Jesus will come. Has anybody heard that? Well, sure you have. Unless you've been asleep. Matthew 24, 32, 33. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Matthew 24, keep in mind, Keep the context. What's it about? The destruction of the temple. Don't be jumping off and taking it where you want to take it. You can't do that. Don't be taking mail out of my mailbox and putting it in somebody else's mailbox. You don't have the right to do that. The context is the destruction of the temple. So learn this parable from the fig tree. When the branches have already become tender and put forth leaves, as you know, summer is near. Verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. He's talking about his coming. Because they ask him, give us a sign of your coming. Give us a sign of your coming. Not talking about in, in an unknown future. He's referring to 70 AD. They didn't know. They, they were the completely three stooges, but they didn't know. They said, oh, we, tell us when your coming is going to. He says, like this. See this fig tree? Here's the fig tree. When you see him blooming, you'll know summer's near. Mark chapter 13, verse 28 and 29. Mark 13 is the Olivet Discourse. So learn this parable from the fig tree. Say fig tree. When the branches have fully become tender and puts forth leaves, that you know summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. So, so let, me, let me put this back to you, my friend. They say the fig tree, dispensations, I can name names. They're still alive. Everywhere from John Hagley or Hagley to all these people, they, they got this down. But the problem, we have a problem with this, and I'm going to explain this to you. Do I believe that Jesus Christ will come again? Absolutely. Do I believe that he'll set up his kingdom upon this earth? Absolutely. 
But I've got to keep these scriptures in context or, or I have mishandled the word of God to you. So the idea of this, of this prophecy, the, how we're going to figure out when he's going to come again is this, is the fig tree. And the fig tree represents Israel. And when Israel blossoms or rebuds as a nation, because they lost it at the Roman Empire, when it rebuds as a nation, in that generation, Parousia will happen. The second coming, Christ will come again. So we know that Israel become a nation in 1948. We know that. So most people believe that a generation is 40 years. So 1948, and they can't take off my shoes, but 1948 and 40 is 1988. So back in the 70s when they wrote all these prophetic books, Impending Hour, The Late Great Planet Earth, how Lindsay wrote The Blood Moons. He did. He got a hold of it. I mean, we had everybody, we had everybody convinced back in the 70s, early 80s that by 1988, Perusia would happen. Jesus would come because Israel became a nation in 1948 and 40 years, he's coming. And that's why we had this great outpouring of 1988 reasons why Jesus would return in 1988. That's what it was called. And unless I missed it, he didn't come. Then somebody said, well, a generation, biblically, is 70 years. All right. So 1948 and 70 is 2018. Are we making up rules as we go here, ladies and gentlemen? Kind of like rugby. Are we making up rules as we go? Who knows what rugby rules are? I don't think there's any rules. Then some say, well, well, well since it didn't happen in 2018, I don't think he came back to earth in 2018. I know he didn't, because if he did, he'd be coming after me. So I'm still here. So someone said, well, 100 years. There was a, a framework that was 100 years. So 1948 and, and 100 years is 2048. So see, we're, we're still hanging on to this. And even like I told you last week, some people refer to generation not as a time frame, but a mind frame. And a mind frame is this. There will always be righteous people and there will always be wicked people on the face of the earth till he comes. So they, they, could, they, 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 can, they can pull out all kinds of cards to, to verify, but, but I want you to know, this that says this, that the fig tree represents Israel. Now, we have a problem with this, and I'm going to show you why. Luke chapter 21, and we're going to go, but Luke chapter 21 deals with the same Olivet Discourse, and watch what it says. Pay close attention. And as some spake of the temple that how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, that he said, Jesus, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another that thou shalt not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, when shall these things be? And what signs will there be when these things shall come to pass? Now stop right there. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. Are y'all awake over here? You okay? Don't, don't, don't go ahead and cancel that subscription to the blue moons or blood moons. No, forget that. They're asking him about the destruction of the temple because this is Luke 21, is the Olivet Discourse. So they said, what is the signs that shall come to pass? Now watch this. Here you go. And he spake to them the parable. Behold the fig tree. Behold the fig tree. Behold the fig tree. And all the trees. Well, that just shot that theory right out of the water. Jesus said, they said, Lord, give us a sign of your coming. He said, all right. Dealing with Jerusalem, 70 AD destruction. He said, here it is. Behold, the fig tree and all the other trees, when they begin to bloom and bud, that you know, go ahead and read it, you know that in that generation, when they shoot forth and see, you know yourself that the summer is now at hand. 
Now the question is that when you're a dispensationist and you use only the fig tree only, you say, see there, Matthew and Mark says the fig tree, and now Luke spoils the whole thing. It's not just a fig tree, it's the fig tree and all the other trees. And so the question you may ask is that why does Luke give us the details about every other tree? And the answer is because Luke was a doctor. And doctors, they deal with details. Luke was a physician. And most doctors that you go to, they're pretty good listeners. And they pay great attention to details. You can go to the doctor and say, I'm not feeling good. He said, let's talk about it. And, and, and you say, well, I've, I've, got a, I've got a stomach. And he said, how long have you known Jamie Keith? I hadn't known him long. My stomach had ulcers since I met him, but besides that. But, but a doctor, but a doctor... He deals with details. And Matthew and Mark, they're, they're great guys, but they're probably, you know, they're probably rodeo clowns and bull riders. I mean, they're just excited to get any part of it. But, but Luke picked up on not only the fig tree, but he picked up on all the other trees. And what I'm telling you is this, that shoots really basically that down of Israel being the sole representative of the nation of Israel being rebirthed, using that as a sign of parousia of the second coming. Because Jesus said, like the fig tree and every other fig tree of nature, once you begin to see the blooms coming, that you know that summer is at hand. The idea that this morning is this. Luke 21, verse 32, watch this. And verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass until it all be fulfilled. This generation. Watch this. Say this generation. Notice he didn't say that generation. He's not speaking about a time period where there is calamity and tribulation and the Antichrist shall come and all. He's not talking about this in, in, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark, and Mark 13. He said in, that, in this generation, what generation? Present tense. In this generation, shall not pass away. And that word, this generation, is really referring to 40 years without trying to pull rabbits out of the house. This is what he's saying. They're asking about the temple and the beauty of it and all these things. And, and there's bits and pieces in Jesus that I just want to tell you straight up. As the fig tree and every other tree, when you start seeing blooms on it, it's letting you know that there's signs of that it's going to come to pass. And he said, and I say unto you that this generation you people here in front of me will not pass away until it be fulfilled. And when he gave this promise, less than 14 days, 10 days, he was to be crucified. In less than 10 days, he would be dead. And so he's speaking to an audience of present day, and he would say this, I will tell you that these certain things are going to happen and this generation, this generation, not in an unknown space and time and year, 2525, this generation, not that generation, this generation, because the word that generation would, would give you the validation to take prophetic scripture and throw them into an unknown space of time. If he had just said, and that generation, all hell will be poured upon the earth, but he doesn't. He said, in this generation, all these things will be fulfilled. So the idea of that this morning, not to make anybody mad and not to make anybody angry at me, but I will tell you, when you understand dispensation is a futuristic things that, that one of the very things that they want to hang on to is the blossom of the fig tree, the, re the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and in that you can add 40 years, 70 years, and whatever you want to be, and we can work off that counter. But I want you to know, that's not true. So in the next few weeks, in no way, shape, or form will I ever make the mistake of trying to put Jesus in a box and tell you when he's going to come because I don't know. And neither does anybody else know. But I will tell you, we've been commanded to be ready 
and to work in the fields and love one another, bear one another's burdens, have empathy and sympathy for the body of Christ, do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. But he'll come again. And when he comes again, it won't be a secret what you think. The Bible said he'll put his feet upon the mount of all of this and they'll split wide open from the east to the west. And the heavens will open up and they'll see him and they'll mourn for him, Zechariah says, as they have pierced their own son. It won't be some secret thing. Well, I'll tell you what, you talk about a grand opening. But Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all that discourse is giving you a time frame of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem to 70 AD. And he said, in this generation. And, in, and we talked about a few verses ago, a couple weeks ago, he said, no man knows a day they are, neither the son does it, only the father. He's not telling you that Jesus is stupid. He said, I don't have the privilege or the liberty to give you every detail. Anybody here raise children? You put them in the backseat of the car and you're going on a road trip? And, and, and so you're going to go to a road trip and you're going to take them to Branson for whatever reason? And you got a five-year on the back seat, and they go, Daddy, where were you going? And so how many of you parents pull over and you pull out the map and you draw them every little town? You don't do that. You just say, hey, just sit back and enjoy the ride. Here's some, here's some breaking news that's going to shock you. Jesus don't have to explain anything to you. That's funny. He doesn't owe you any explanation of anything. I'm a slave to him. I'm in bondage to him. I'm a servant of the king. And I'm going to tell you straight up, by the time I get the millennial reign, your hair will turn around backwards. There's a king living inside of me. I'm not a Christian as you want to label me. There's a king that lives in me. A Christian is the, is the, the suffix is obedient to the prefix. I-E-N, it means that I'm obedient. I-E means I'm obedient to the, the laws of the prefix, whether it be Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. It means that I-A-N means I'm, the suffix is obedient to the prefix. It means I'm obedient to the laws of the prefix. I-A-N means I'm obedient to Christ. But the word Christ just means anointed one, but I'm obedient to the king. And there's a king that lives within me and right now. And that's why some hate me. But there's something in you that's drawn to truth. And you're here today because you want to know truth and you're drawn to truth and you're so tired of being fed all that other junk that it doesn't satisfy. But once you get around truth, I'm telling you, truth be God's truth. And I told somebody that day, I said, the Bible's always been true. That Jeremiah says that the sun sets upon the circle of the earth. We didn't need Columbus to tell us in 1492 that the earth was circled. Jeremiah said that the earth was round. Truth begets truth. So this morning, as we begin to just kind of wade off into Bible prophecy, keep in mind that the, all of that discourse has everything to do with the destruction and the calamity and the despair that was coming to the Jews and the inhabitants of the people. But only those that would hear him to say to run to the mountains and flee to the hills and go as far as you can. Because you heard me say this, but watch this. Watch this. I'm going to say it again. Because some of you was even asleep. I know you don't believe that, but some of you are. Acts chapter 1, Luke writes it. And this is what he says. Verse 7, after his resurrection, they beheld him for 40 days. The disciples still didn't get it. And Acts chapter 1, 6 and 7 said this. Are you going to restore your kingdom now? Are you going to build a building now? Can we have a big church now? Can we have a temple that's bigger than what we got now? You're resurrected. Oh man, we're going to, we're going to do great things. We're going to buy a bus and we're going to be big. And Jesus is going, oh. And this is what he said. He says, go. 
And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Well, what's this? He's telling them to leave. Why would Jesus tell them to leave? Because in 70 AD, if they stayed there, they would lose their life and the gospel would never reach where it needed to be reached. See, in Acts chapter 1 and 8, tell them to go into all the world, even though that's a call of commission that we're all familiar with, but it was beyond that. Because if they would have stayed there, they would have all been destroyed. And so they hung around for a long time, if you don't know this, and they sent them up at the disciples' mall. Oh, it was great. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem with all the disciples there, signing books and autographs, pictures of them and Jesus together, got their arm around one another? Oh, it was great for a long time. But the gospel wasn't going anywhere. Until somebody picked up a rock and busted Stephen right between the eyes, and he died, and his blood ran upon the, the steps of the temple. And it's amazing how many people scattered at that moment. And at the moment of the stoning of Stephen, they left. Now, a few stayed around. James and, and them stayed around, and, and they were killed. They were, they were beheaded before long. But the, but the most of the people, when they saw Stephen's brains lying on the temple steps, they left. It's amazing. But in leaving, the gospel went out, and they were dispersed, dysphoria. So what I'm telling you this morning is the fact that Jesus was given the reference point that the destruction of Jerusalem was coming in 70 AD, and it did happen. But he was given the information, you need to get out and go. So these things won't come upon you in order that the gospel can go and be further. So next week we're going to talk about preterists. We're going to talk about things that the kingdom is in us now. And if you're born again of God, I'm telling you, there's a King Jesus that lives in you. And the same Jesus that rose from the dead, if he lives in you, it's the life of God. It's, 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 it's the fullness of, of his kingdom in you now. The kingdom is here now among us. There's something on the inside of you that's, that's reigning and, and, and justice and equity. And, and there's a great peace and, and calmness when, when everybody is, is out of control in panic and fear because there's a king living in you. And if you don't have that, then I want to encourage you that we'd just like to pray with you that you would invite King Jesus into your life. Because I don't yet think we have seen, I think what we're in, in the labor pains of a pregnant woman in the things to come. But I will tell you, the great states, the United States, we're not exempt from what Ukraine is going through right now. Don't think we are. Because those people, there's people there that love Jesus with all their heart. So this morning, that w will he come again? Yes. But don't make the mistake trying to put him in a box because he'll make you look like a fool. Just serve him, love him, honor him, worship him, love one another, serve the Lord with gladness, work in the fields, do what we need to do. Because there's a king lives within us. Say, so let's close with this. This is close. Take a smile. Just, just take a load off. Because my whole life I've been told, well, we got to get right because the king is coming. I'm looking on my shoulder for the boss is coming. So my whole life I felt like I, I had to always look on my shoulder, make sure I'm getting it right. And little did I realize the king of glory is in me. I was looking for him and all along he's inside me. And ever since I've become aware of that thing, that concept 20-something years ago, my perception of what I do and how I work, and that's why I give you my best. That's why I serve you with my best. That's why I do everything because it's not the fact I'm waiting for him to come or he's watching me. It's the fact that he is the one that's working and moving and doing things in my life to serve the body of Christ. Yes. King's in you. The axe is laid to the root. The fan is already in motion. The king is already at work in your life. Father, this morning, there is no kingdom like your son's kingdom. John the Baptist got it right. The king of heaven is at hand. It's right in front of me. It's staring at me right in the eye. 
Humans refer to him as Jesus, Yahshua, the anointing one, but you pronounce him to be king when he came out of his mother's womb. And the coronation of his resurrection, as soon as he was risen from the dead, that you coronated the coronation of heaven, of resurrecting him, that it united not only the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of earth. He became both on resurrection day. And that same spiritual king now resides in our heart. The book of Proverbs says that a wise king speaks and whispers wisdom to us. So this morning, help us to continue to put your word in, in the framework and context. And we're never going to make the tragic mistake of trying to predict something that never was really meant for us to predict. We believe that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. The scripture says that you lived a sinless or a vicarious life. The scripture tells us that you suffered a malpractice of justice in Pilate's court. The scripture tells us that you was crucified upon a cross. The scripture tells us that you died and three days later you was risen from the dead. The scripture tells us that you will come again. The scripture tells us that you will establish your kingdom upon this earth and we will live with you forever and ever in a perfect condition. That's what the scripture says, Father, and help us never to confuse or to clog the minds of the thought process of other people with false information and false prediction. So this morning, we're just going to turn our attention back to one another in the body of Christ. And we pray for those that are sick that belong to this church. And we pray for those that are struggling right now here this morning. And we pray for those that's going through some marital problems. We just pray for one another. We put on the, we put on the towel in the basin ministry. We wash one another's feet. We're going to serve you with gladness. We're slaves unto the king this morning and give us wisdom and equity and justice. Open the windows of our heart and throw open the doors that they may know that there's King Jesus lives within us. In our thoughts and our reactions and everything we do, it's not us, but it's Christ in us. And let your kingdom be demonstrated and let all people know that Christ lives forever. And in these things, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. How many knows that Jesus is coming back again? He is. So next week we're going to talk about Petrus, and we're going to talk about people that thinks that already everything's already happened, taking place. And I'll give you, I'll give you some information on that. So here's the good news: nothing. This has nothing to do with your salvation has nothing to do with your eternal security, has nothing to do with anything. It has everything you do realizing there's a king living in you and he's doing great things. All right? Is there things to come? Of course. But I'll tell you what, what the greatest thing that ever happened is for you to be born again. Jesus said, don't rejoice because demons are subject to you. Rejoice because your name is written in the book of heaven. So I'm glad for that this morning. All right? Stand with me if you would, please. Turn about three people and say, listen, I love you. I, at first, I, I didn't know if I liked you, but I love you. <laughs> Communion service, a couple of you, please come. But I will tell you, Jesus said to a Samaritan woman beside a well. He said, lady, it doesn't matter if it was Mount Moriah or Garrison. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know if God was standing on both mountains. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know he was there. But the day will come where people that will worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. I want you to know before we take Holy Communion, there's something that's going on in you. There's this awakening. There is this movement of the Spirit of God in you. 
It's the truth of the king, the kingdom of heaven has been awakened in your life. And, and it's this magnet being pulled into the gravitational force of not only his son, but, but God the Father. And I cannot tell you the day or the hour that he will come again, but I will tell you one thing that I feel that he is closer to me than he's ever been in my life. God is doing something in your life. And he's giving you strength. He's not here to make your family better. Listen to me. Jesus said, I didn't come to make your family better. I've come to, to ground you and root you in truth. No matter what comes your way, you will still stand every storm of life. Father, this morning as we celebrate Holy Communion, would you do exactly that? Would you deepen our roots? And for the things that will not change and won't change, whether it be our family members, our loved ones, I'm not asking you to change anybody, Father. I'm asking you to change me. I want to be stronger in your word. I want to be more steadfast in your doctrine of truth. I don't have to understand what every other prophecy said. I just want to hear what you had to say. And if you tell me to run to the hills and the mountains, I'm going to go. So, Father, this morning we pray as we celebrate Holy Communion today. Help us to understand that the King, He lives among us even now. The fullness of time has come. King Jesus is here. Bless this cup and bless this bread. And for all that partake of it, let it find nourishment to our life. In Jesus' name, amen.